Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. Acts 15, and while you're turning there, being a minister in the Southeast, you often find yourself asking questions uh, like, I wonder if that guy's really a Christian. Uh, you know, all the right answers, maybe some of the right outward practices, but then there's some things in this person's life that don't add up. Or other questions that we all as Christians probably ask in some form or fashion at times would be something like this. Am I right with the Lord right now? And by that I don't mean, am I a Christian or not? I mean, you, you could mean it that way. But I mean more like this. If, let's say my wife and I had, had a big fight last night. And I showed up here and I was talking in the back to one of y'all and I mentioned that. And somebody said, well, are you and her okay? Are y'all, are y'all reconciled? And I said, well, no. Actually, it was, we went to bed angry and we didn't have a chance to catch up. Maybe I don't need to teach Sunday school this morning. He said, oh, you mean you're getting a divorce? I, I was no. No, we're not getting a divorce, you know. Uh, we're not going to do that, but but are we getting along relationally right now? No, right? And, and there can be a sense in the most mature Christian's life at times where it's like, I know I'm a Christian. I have utter assurance of salvation, and yet I feel distant from the Lord. I don't feel close to the Lord, right? Um, and, and, and listen, there, there can be, when we talk about looking at somebody else's life and saying, is that person really a believer even though they profess faith? Some of us can kind of recoil at that because there can be an arrogant, judgmental, condescending, look down our nose at people. Wrong way to ask that question. But there can also be a loving, caring, compassionate way to ask that question. Let me just give you a personal example that I think you can probably all understand, especially if you have children that are old enough. There will be times where you say, my child has made a profession of faith. He went to the communicants class. He convinced the elders. He got baptized, but I'm living with him 24-7, and I ain't so sure that he's really regenerate. Okay, um, John Calvin said this, Nothing is more common in the world than falsely to assume the name of God or to pretend to be his people. So if you're like, I really don't like asking those kind of questions or thinking that way, I'm not sure you're taking the Bible as seriously as you should because the Bible talks and thinks this way a lot. And Acts 15 would be one example. So look at uh, just the first couple of verses. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Excuse me, Acts chapter 15. Acts, what was wrong with me? I, I did this all week instead. Did I say Acts from the beginning? Listen, Psalm chapter 15. I don't know what this is. God may be trying to tell me something, but literally all week as I would study, like I would open to Acts 15. I'm like, I'm not doing Acts. And I'd flip this. I mean, I, I literally, this is, the, this is the 25th time. So I think I need to go memorize Acts 15. I think the Holy Spirit is trying to tell me something. So if y'all want to read Acts 15 this week and then say, hey, Olin, I got a word from you, I'll probably listen. Uh, because I'm, I'm not joking. This is I even wrote it in my notes a couple of times. I'm like, I'm not doing Acts. But <laughs> Psalm 15. <laughs> All right. Lord, whatever you're trying to tell me, tell me, please. Oh, Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? So think about 
the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was essentially the church in the Old Testament. But every, I mean, there's a place, I think it's Romans chapter 9, verse 6, where Paul says, essentially, not every person that's a physical Israelite is a spiritual Israelite, right? Just because you were born a Jew doesn't mean you were really right with God. So there's a sense in which, which of these people are real, God, and can, and can rightly come into worship? Or you could take the question, God, I know I'm a believer, but I've been dealing with a lot of sinful stuff, and I feel distant from you. I mean, should, should I really be coming into worship at this point? Okay. Now, first, David is going to answer the question, and the Holy Spirit through David, in a very broad fashion. Look at verse 2. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. So, walking with integrity. The, the word integrity has to do with the idea of wholeness. doesn't mean perfection. But it's very similar to this idea of speaking the truth in his heart. It's not just saying the right outward stuff, but it's, it's my life and my lips align. Right? I don't just talk the talk, I walk the walk. Now, sometimes we can say, yeah, but technically no Christian perfectly walks the walk, and aren't we all kind of technically hypocrites? But again, that, that's not understanding the, the right way to use the word hypocrite of this concept. Matthew Henry said it this way. He said, I know no religion but sincerity. And then speaking of a true Christian, he says, he has spots indeed, but he does not deceive. Makes sense? Do you remember when Jesus met Nathaniel, John chapter 1, verse 47, and he said, behold, an Israelite in whom is no guile. And Nathaniel had probably just kind of made a sinful comment. And Jesus is like, but at least the guy's honest. I'll give you a personal example. I had to teach this summer doing a staff training for a campus outreach group, and, and one of the things they wanted me to teach on was evangelism. But as I was preparing to teach, one of the things I realized is I, I have been woefully negligent in the area of evangelism over the summer. Evangelism comes pretty easy for me during the semester when I'm with students a lot. It's easy to share the gospel with law students. But all the students are gone. I do have some evangelistic relationships at the gym in my neighborhood. But I realize, and I'm getting ready to teach, it's like I probably haven't personally shared my faith in two months. And it would be a little bit hypocritical for me to get up and give this great sermon on evangelism when I haven't been practicing what I'm preaching. So I just, as I was teaching, said, I need to make a confession. Because I was trying to say, I want to be a man of integrity. I want to be a man of wholeness and not trying to put a fake false foot forward. Does that make sense? Which, guys, is so tempting to do. So, um, fake holiness is really double sin. Because you're not... Whatever the sin is, like for me, not evangelizing. And then, in a sense, I'm lying about it. I'm trying to make myself look better than I am. It's better just to be honest about where you're struggling. So that's the kind of man David says. It's not sinless perfection that makes you a real believer that can come close to God and worship Him. But it's, it's genuine maturity. You, you've been changed by grace in your heart, but then you're also moving forward. You work righteousness. You don't just talk righteousness. Your life is slowly but surely being changed, conformed into a righteous life. Now, now David's going to get a lot more specific. Okay? He's basically going to say, you've got to be holy in your words, with your friends, and with your money. So first, with your words. Look at verse 3. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. 
Now, what is David, what is the Holy Spirit really after here? Now, the, the, the easy, most obvious thing is, well, don't, don't lie about people. Don't, like, spread malicious gossip. Don't say negative stuff about people, certainly untrue negative stuff. But that's almost too obvious, right? It's like, of course I shouldn't be out there telling tales, lies about people. Something more is meant by these three phrases. Look, at he does not slander with his tongue. And the word slander there, it kind of has a root that means, like, to spy out. It's almost like somebody going and looking to find juicy tidbits of negative stuff about other people. And then, in a sense, I'm going to walk around on my tongue. I'm going to make a name, a reputation for myself, earn friends by being able to kind of spread the juicy gossip. Right? We probably all know of somebody like that in the world. Spurgeon said this, It's foolish to pick up stolen goods. Right? I mean, if I, if I walked by a store and people were looting it and there was just some stuff laying out, it'd be stupid and sinful for me to just say, Well, it's laying there. I should just take it. In the same sense, he said, it's foolish to pick up ill reports as well. Okay. One lesson I try to teach my kids. <laughs> I try. I don't know how well I've succeeded. I've tried. As they'd come home at times, you know, say, well, Dad, did you hear that so-and-so did da 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 And I'd say, how do you know? How do you know for sure? I mean, I'm still having to have this conversation with, they're pretty grown now. It's like, don't believe everything you heard on the Internet, Right? I often try to ask that. How do you know? And then even if they're like, no, I know for sure. I, I, be, be careful. Be careful about spreading that stuff. Okay. But, here, but here's the second one. This is where it gets convicting for me personally. Even if you know something for sure to be true that's negative about somebody else, oftentimes it is not best to pass it on, right? Keep your finger in Psalms for a second. We're coming right back, but flip over to Proverbs just two places. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Then Proverbs 19.11. It's one of my favorites. Proverbs 19.11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. How many times in our lives do we commit a sin, obvious sin, we know it's a sin, and God just overlooks it? There's no discipline. There's no chastisement. We don't even maybe think to confess or repent, and God just in His mercy just overlooks it. I mean, it happens every day, right? And one way we can be like God is even when we see little transgressions in others to overlook it. Right? And certainly not to spread it. But now... Some people will take this, a principle like this, verses like this, and they'll say, here's the application. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. But that didn't work biblically. And let me just kind of give you a couple examples. Think about Matthew chapter 18, passage we're probably all familiar with. Right? Verse 15. If your brother sins, go rebuke him. But what do you do if he doesn't repent? You're supposed to go back and take somebody else with you. So you just play it out logically. Let's just imagine John caught me having an affair with another woman. And he came to me and said, Oh, and this is sin. You've got to stop right now. And I said, I, Get out of my face. I don't care what you think. What's John supposed to do? John's supposed to go get somebody else and come back and talk to me. So if John came to Bob and said, Hey, Bob, I need you to go talk to Olin with me. Bob's like, About what? Don't worry about it. Just trust me. <laughs> no, he's got to say, I've got to tell you something. It's terrible. 
It's true, but you understand? So there are times when I know something true about somebody, negative about somebody, when I should talk to somebody else about it. Again, if you have kids, this is half a parenting, right? Little Johnny told me a lie today while you were gone. I'm talking about him negatively to you behind his back. That's parenting, okay? So the question that we need to wrestle with if we want to really take this serious in our life is this. When is it okay, when is it right to say something negative about somebody else in a sense behind their back, not in their presence? Make sense? So here's the three principles I think biblically that help us do this. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. What's your motive, right? I mean, to use this hypothetical, and it is hypothetical situation that I made up, if John goes to Bob to say, Bob, I need you to go with me to rebuke Olin, John's motive there is love. He's trying to help me get out of sin. He's not trying to slander me or tar and feather me. He's loving me. Does that make sense? Is your motive love? What's your motive? The second thing, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love hopes all things. Love believes all things. Love endures all things. Here's my kind of personal application of that. You've got to assume the best. You hear something about somebody... Try to put the most positive spin on it possible. Right? Give them the benefit of that. Well, maybe they had a good reason for saying that. Maybe they had a good... Bend over backwards <clears throat> to assume the best. Now, this was a principle my wife and I tried to implement in marriage. Not always so successfully. And I love to apply it to her. You're not assuming the best about me, babe. And uh, sometimes she would say, I can't assume the best about you anymore. Because everything about your tone of voice, your facial expression, your body language is pointing in the opposite of the best direction. And so the kind of the corollary that we developed was, well, once you can't assume the best anymore, the next thing to do is go ask the person. Go ask. I mean, sometimes that's the most loving thing to do. Hey, I heard something about you, or maybe I did see something, and oh, I'm trying to give you a benefit of the doubt, but it really looks bad. And so I'm just, I'm trying to ask you. That can be very helpful. And the third principle is this, Matthew 7, 12. Just the golden rule. And this, this really gets up. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, that, that, that answers so many practical questions in life, right? If the shoe was on the other foot, if this person had seen me doing this or heard this about me, what, how would I want them to respond? And then try to do that. Okay. I think you pray through those three principles. But I think this is an area where and maybe I'm chief, we're not near circumspect enough about our words. We've got to be holy with our words. The second thing, we've got to be holy with our friends. Look at verse 4. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt, and he does not change. So a shorthand way to say this is, they hate wicked people, and they honor godly people. Now, this can seem wrong because, like, why well, are we supposed to love our enemies and all that? This has more to do with the idea of choosing your friends wisely, choosing your close associates, choosing your running around buddies, that you're wise about how you choose friends, how you choose the people that are going to have the most influence over you. Because you realize that you're not so godly, you're not so mature, People don't affect me. We're all affected by the people around us. So you're careful. Now just don't answer this one out loud, but just think for a second. 
What tends to be the reason that we choose our friends, our closest associates? A lot of times it's, it's out of just tradition. Sometimes it's just habit. Sometimes it's just convenience or some kind of advantage. Maybe they like my sense of humor or I like their sense of humor. Maybe it's because they're rich, right? Maybe it's because they're fun. Maybe because they have good business networking connections that helps me. And what this passage is saying is, listen, when it gets to choosing your most closest associates in life, it ought to just be godliness. I want to be surrounded by godly people. You know, I remember having this conversation with one of my sons who will you know, remain nameless to protect the not-so-innocent and, and back in school. Buddy, are there any of the guys in your class that you think are serious about their faith and walking with God? Yeah, maybe one or two, Dad. Why don't you spend more time hanging out with him? Because that one's a nerd and that one's a loser, Dad. I'm like, what? And I get it. I was in high school too, right? But I, but I lived long enough. Like, I'd rather you have a nerd and a loser who were passionate about Jesus as your friends than all the cool guys who were dragging you down. And, and listen, us 40-plus-year-olds, we're a little bit 30-plus wherever you land, okay? I'm in the 40-plus. We're a little bit more sophisticated than that, but sometimes not much. Think about James chapter 2. Remember, James was having to rebuke churches for saying, hey, if a rich man comes into your assembly, don't honor him. Don't treat him better than you treat the poor guy. Why would they be tempted to do that? Because they're like, if we give the rich guy a nice seat up front, maybe he puts a big tithe in. Just evaluate yourself. What is it that drives us to choose our friends, our closest associates. And let me try to give two examples. Again, I'm trying to make this as practical as possible. And I'm not trying to make a political statement here, so hope you'll trust me. I think it, it makes total sense to me for a Christian to say, I voted for President Trump in one election, two elections, because some of his positions align so well with Christianity, pro-life being the most obvious. It makes all the sense in the world to me. But during the past couple of elections, you know, there were professing Christians, even ministers, going on major news cycles saying like, I know President Donald Trump and he's like a really strong Christian. It's like, come on, man. Let's just be honest about the facts, about stuff that's out there in public. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, well, why would somebody do that? I think it was like, this will advantage me. Now that's kind of a big thing. Again, I'm not making a political statement. Vote for the person you think is best to vote for. Okay. But let's get a little more practical. None of us want major news cycles. Do you have friends in your life that will contradict you? Here, here's the way that I see the average conservative evangelical not applying this verse. Is we like to surround ourselves with other nice, friendly Christians that agree with me on everything. They never cross me. They never contradict me. They're just, they're just loyal to me. And what this verse is saying, no, no, no. Choose friends who are loyal to God first. And part of that means they are not afraid to say, I mean, I was in a meeting just this week with a good friend, and I was making some statements, and a couple times he said, I don't like what you're saying. I don't like the way you're saying it. And I pre listen, I disagreed with him. He's like, I think you're kind of saying something negative about those people that's not fair. And I said, I don't think I am. But I didn't get all in a huff. How dare you challenge me? <laughs> like, man, I need people in my life that challenge me. I'm not above the law. 
Do you welcome those kind of people in your life? Or the people that challenge you, do you kind of say, ah, I don't need that. Dangerous. Choose, here, here's my bottom line way to say it. Choose people that love God more than they love you. Um, look at the last phrase there again. He swears to his own hurt, he does not change. Now you could interpret that in a wooden, literal way that you can never break a vow. Go read Proverbs chapter 6, the first three verses talk about sometimes there's a right time and way to break a vow. And let me just again kind of give an example. If you got married to somebody and then like the day after the wedding you found out they had a secret hidden family over in Georgia. I don't know anybody would say you can't just say, I, you know, I said till death do us part, but I'm breaking that vow. Because you lied about having another husband in another state, right? Nobody would say, oh, broke your vow. But you can't get married and then your wife burned the toast and say, oh, I divorce you. I don't like burned toast. I'm committed to people, even when it hurts. That kind of love relationship. You got to be holy with your words, with your friends, and then third, you got to be holy with your money. Look at verse five. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Again, the second phrase there is pretty obvious. Most of us are not in a place to take a bribe, and if we were, we're like, I know that's bad. Certainly against innocent people. Like, can you take a bribe against the guilty? Don't take bribes. But the first one is tougher. He doesn't put out his money at interest. Like so much of our economy is built on interest. And, and the Old Testament law had a lot to say about interest. Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Let's just look at one place. Deuteronomy chapter 23. And it's helpful when you read this to remember the nation of Israel... Under Moses and even under David still was primarily an agrarian society, lots of farmers. Deuteronomy chapter 23, skip down to verse 19. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner. Now, just think about it. So, interest in and of itself is not bad. And some people say, well, the application for us is... You can make business loans, don't make personal loans. That's a step in the right direction, but probably not clear enough. Here, here's the bottom line. When somebody is poor and desperate, you don't need to try to make money off of their poverty and desperation. But in business, when somebody's like, hey, I got this real estate deal, if you invest $100,000, you know, $100, we're going to make this much. If they're going to make a big gain, it's right for you to make some gain. That, that's, that is the dividing line. Does that make sense? John Calvin said, when one party is trying to gain at the other party's loss, that's a problem. But if both parties are gaining, that's just good business. That's the way business is supposed to work. Okay? Here's Matthew Henry. It's a little bit of a long quote. It's really good. Listen to this. It is wrong for someone to charge interest that he may live at ease upon the labors of others, while he is in a capacity for improving it by his own industry. Not that it is any breach of the law or justice or charity for the lender to share in the profit which the borrower makes of his money any more than for the owner of the land to demand rent from the occupant, money being by art and labor as improvable as land. But a citizen of Zion, a real believer, will freely lend to the poor according to his ability and not be rigorous or severe in recovering his right from those that are reduced by providence. I love that last phrase. Why are we rich compared to most people in the world and other people are poor? <clears throat> Providence, don't let it go to your head. 
And when you have opportunities to share, do it. Now, let's talk application for a second. Notice what God's doing here. It, it reminds me a little bit of when the Pharisees would come to Jesus to test Him. They're like, what's the greatest commandment? Right? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. Why did Jesus get two? They didn't ask for two, they asked for one. Because Jesus knew for self-righteous, professing Israelites. It was easy to say, of course I love God. Of course I go to temple. Of course I worship. Of course I pray. Of course I memorize Torah. And Jesus was saying, if you really love God, the test to know that you love God will be, do you love your neighbor? That's what this passage is doing. I mean, right? It's all about dealing with other people, with our words, with our friends, with our money. It's getting very practical. And so I would just say for all of us this morning, please let the Holy Spirit have His own way with you. Please let this short little text convict you. Where is it that you struggle the most in one of these areas? Again, for me, I know, it's, it's, it's the temptation to slander. Again, when I know something true, I want to tell somebody else. And guys, I'm good at justifying it. Well, it's true. Right? I'm trying to be a truth teller. But then I have to say, what's my motive? Am I really trying to help this person? And if you're like, I'm not convicted in any of these three areas. That's pretty concerning. Because I think this passage is almost written in such a way to say, it's going to get everybody. Right? It, it's like it's intentionally going after the white-collar, domesticated, respectable sins in the area of money, in the area of friends, in the area of your words. Right? James said, who can tame the tongue? Who comes out of this one unscathed? You know, I've said in other settings before, and it just hit me as I was studying this passage this week. When I have seen guys, and primarily I'm talking about in campus outreach, that's where I do most of my work, where I've seen upper-level leaders in ministry fired, usually what it came down to was they were, they were telling lies, they were bending the truth, or they were doing something funny with money. They would both be caught. Does that make sense? It doesn't tend to be for something scandalous. It tends to be with these type of things. So, now, once we've been honest with ourselves about where we struggle personally, here's the second question we've got to ask. Why? Why do we struggle in that area? Why are we tempted to speak unloving words about other people sometimes, even if they're true? Because at some level, it does make me feel better about myself, does it not? This person did that, and I would never do that. <laughs> Maybe not, but there's like ten other things over here that I would do <laughs> that this person would never do. Why would we tend to choose friends who aren't godly? Because we like being honored. We like being liked. We like being respected. We like being the center of the world and them kind of being loyal to us at all costs. And why do we tend to not be generous enough with our money and even kind of cut corners sometimes and how we're supposed to handle our money because at some level in an insecure world we're tempted to trust our money. If I got enough in the 401k, in the bank account, in the stock market and all the different diversified assets, then I can rest secure. 
So you see, this passage in one sense is a little bit like fencing the table before communion, right? Who should come? Who should come to the table? And so read through this and examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. And examine yourself to see whether you be walking closely with the Lord. Now look at the very last phrase. He who does these things will never be shaken. Essentially saying, if you live this way, you'll never be eternally shaken. Right? We've said it in here before. You might be shaken in this life, but you won't be shaken in the next life. Here's another commentator, a guy named Tate. This is, this is really good. Listen to this. If one were to reflect too long upon the substance of this text without insight, worship would never be possible. What transforms the psalm from a barrier to a gateway is the realization that the preparation for worship illuminates also the necessity for worship. We must live in such a way that we may prepare for worship with integrity, without hypocrisy. On the other hand, the introspection involved prior to worship clarifies beyond any doubt the need for forgiveness. Only then do we realize that the privilege may never be casually exploited and also that the Holy God is not inaccessible. You hear what he's saying? I mean, if you were driving into church this morning and just happened to be meditating on this, at first glance there might be a sense, I'm not worthy to come because of some of the things I've said this week. Oh yeah, but why am I coming? To be reminded of the forgiveness that I need so much. It's an invitation. Yes, it's inviting you to introspection, but not so you'll stay away, so that you'll come. But so you'll come with a hungry, humble heart of desperation. Guys, this, like so many passages in the Bible, it's a warning against legalism. Don't just go through the boxes and check, you know, the right motions. It's got to be heart stuff, integrity. But... Don't live by license either. Don't abuse grace. Don't think, well, Jesus died on the cross, I can do whatever the heck I want. Because He has given me that saving grace, I ought to be working in junction with the Holy Spirit to see sanctifying grace move forward even harder and faster. Now, remember, all of this started with talking about who may come into and approach God's holy hill, God's tent. What's that talking about? It's talking about the tabernacle that became the temple eventually where sacrifices were done and in the Old Testament I mean, especially during the Exodus when they were living out in the wilderness for 40 plus years it was really like God said you guys are out there living in tents like sojourners and pilgrims I'm going to come and set up my tent right in the middle of you I'm with you and that was a precursor of the Lord Jesus saying I'm going to come set up my tent in the incarnation take on your flesh and live among you And guys, think about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not afraid to speak the hard truth. But he always did it with a loving motive, did he not? I mean, to me, maybe the clearest picture of this is the woman caught in adultery. Where are your accusers? They've all left. Well, I don't condemn you either. Yeah, but go and sin no more. Don't ever do this again. He spoke the truth in love. Think about with his friends. He didn't want friends in powerful places. He wanted friends that were loyal to his father. That's the kind of people he was looking for. And he made us his friends when we didn't deserve that. Um, 
Why should we be willing to say, I can overlook the offenses of others? Because Christ overlooks our offenses. Why should we be willing to say, I will choose friends that are loyal to God first and me second? You know, there's this verse, I think it's 1 Samuel 2, somewhere, 2.30, where God essentially says, if you honor me, I'll honor you. I don't need friends to honor me if I feel like God's going to honor me, right? That makes me freed up from the people-pleasing game. And why should we not trust in our money to secure us? Because, number one, it can't. And, number two, Christ has made us eternally secure. Think about this, guys. Christ, in some sense, swore to his Father in the covenant of redemption. I'm going to save those people. And when he got up face to face with the abyss and he realized how much it was going to hurt, he didn't back out. He swore and he kept his vow even to his own hurt. A couple last thoughts. I said this passage in a lot of ways is like fencing the table before communion. And, and I always thought that this is one of the things that I thought Pastor Reader did a great job of, the way he fenced the table. You remember before communion? Like, listen... If you're not a Christian, don't come. The table can't say, don't come if you're not a Christian. I mean, stay away. But if you're a Christian, you're like, but I got some sin in my life. You should come. It's for sinners saved by grace. That's the right kind of sobriety. Not everybody can come. But if I really have been forgiven by grace, I don't need to abuse that grace. I need to be serious about introspecting myself and changing, repenting. But really, the more I meditate on my sin, if I'm doing it in an appropriate way that leads to repentance, there ought to be even more of an urgency. I want to go worship my risen Savior who took the wrath that I deserve so that I can be free to abide in God's holy hill. So I pray for us this week, guys. Take this passage. Examine your own life. Examine your heart. Examine your words, your thoughts, your desires, the motives. Let it convince you. But let it convict us in such a way not to push us further away from Christ, but to draw us closer into worship. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we're so sinful. I, even after decades of salvation and sanctification for many of us, Lord Jesus, there are still so many sins in our lives that grieve us. How much more must they grieve you? And I pray that we will not take them lightly. I pray that we would not have a everybody else is doing it attitude. And nor would we have an attitude, well, it could be a lot worse. I'm not doing scandalous stuff, so this stuff isn't that bad. Lord. I pray that we would hate our sin the way that you hate it. That we would grieve over our sin because it grieves your heart. But Lord Jesus, I pray that as we rightly examine ourselves, rightly see sin and confess and repent, I pray that it would never push us away from you. But I pray that it will remind us what a gracious, patient, tender, sympathetic high priest you are. So that it would draw us all the more in to worship you more closely, more intimately, and then be changed more by your grace. We pray this all in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen 
and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.